from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. Hello, friends and fellow car lovers. Welcome to the second part of our highlight episodes where we go back to look at some great moments from season one of Cars That Matter. In episode seven, I had the opportunity to travel to Napa Valley Reserve in San Helena, where we recorded a great conversation with owner and winemaker Bill Harlan. Bill's friend and noted car collector Bruce Meyer joined us, and he had a wonderful story to share about a car that found its perfect owner at the perfect time. We are at Meadowood Napa Valley, so we're not in the quiet of a studio. In fact, we've got some frogs and woodpeckers and all kinds of things going on around us, and it just reminds us what a beautiful place we're in. And am I mistaken? Was there a was there a 275 GTB story that you guys could share? It's a great story. Let me tell a story before that, though. <laughs> the second car that I ever saw was a, a 275 GTB. I saw that car, and about three years later, I was able to buy one. So I kept it for a few years, and it was a 1965, I guess. And it had first uh, year. Yeah. the drive shaft was always getting out of balance. Right. And I couldn't afford to keep it going, to own the car, and also keep it but drive shaft and balance and everything else. So I ended up selling it. Really what I wanted was a yellow one. So I sold it at about 1971, I'd say, 70 or 71. So that's the story on me, selling the red one to get a yellow one. But I never could quite afford all the other things I I wanted to keep my life going until one day I called Bruce. So So this is, I mean, this is like a divine story, okay? The big boy upstairs, divine. I got a call from a Beverly Hills policeman. And I think I know every garage in Beverly Hills. And he said, Bruce, there's a lady. Her husband died 11 years ago. She has a Ferrari in the garage. And she wants to sell it. I said, I'm not a dealer. I'm not sure I'm the right guy. And I'm thinking, it's a car that I probably know nothing about. So he just said, please, just go and talk to her and make nice and so forth. Okay. I get to the house. This lady was so sweet. Her husband was an Austrian Olympian skier. She had like a funky motorhome. She moved out of the way of the garage. She opens up the garage. And the garage is full of litter and boxes. And there's this car covered. And she rolls back the cover. You could have knocked me over with a feather. Here is an alloy-bodied 275 GTB, torque tube, six carburetor, outside gas cap. Alloy. All original, original paint, everything. And I'm going, oh my God. It was like the most beautiful thing I did. I mean, tell me, how did you, what is the story in this car? She said, my husband bought this car from Chris Cord. He and his wife, Katrina, went on their honeymoon in this car in 1966. They bought it brand new, picked it up at the factory, drove it, brought it back to the U.S. and sold it to my husband in 1966. Wow. I'm going, oh, my gosh. My husband died like 11 years ago. It's been sitting here, and I think it's just time that it needs to go. And can you help me sell it? I don't have any idea what the value of this car is because I really didn't. Alloy body, outside gas cap. Yeah, I think they right. made two or three of them it that year. Like nothing. Sure. Yeah. I put her in my car. I drove her to my house, which was like a walk away, and I showed her Bill Doheny's car, which was a twin to this car. Yeah. 
fast forward like six months or so. And she said, Bruce, I've decided to sell the car. I've decided on the price. But, you know, I just don't like the guy. I said, you know, why don't you just think it over. Let me think about it. I get a call from Bill. And he said, you know, I'm turning, I don't know, what was it, 60? 60. I'm turning 60 on Saturday. Over 19 years ago. And I want to buy myself a car. And Bill and I have always talked about cars. And, you know, he says, what do you think of this? And, you know, so we've we've always had conversations about cars. Or if something comes up that I think Bill ought to have, you know, I I have no problem. Once again, the devil on the shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, he said, I'd like to get a 275. I love a yellow one. And now I'm thinking he's messing with me. There's no way... The, the he, same he day, know. there's no, there's no way he would say, "I want a 275, a yellow 275." That's beyond coincidence. And I start messing with Bill because I'm thinking he knows something. There's no possible way he would just call me out of the blue. And it's not like we talk every day or every week right, or every right, month. Right. He just called me and said he went. And after querying him, I realized he had he no know. idea. He didn't know. I said, "Okay, here's the deal. You FedEx me." Tomorrow, information on Meadowood about yourself. FedEx me anything you can about what your lifestyle, and I'm going to make your day. I said, just trust me. And I said, I want you to come down here on Friday. I called Michelle. I said, Michelle, I'm going to make your day. You're going to receive tomorrow information about a guy that is the absolute right owner for your car. I'm pretty good about talking about Bill because <laughs> I, you know. I, I'm a huge fan, as you, know, you can tell. You're a master of ceremonies. You yeah. know how to introduce people. So she said, oh, I'm so excited, Bruce. And we have a friend of ours, Chip Connor, who sure. had a garage in, in L.A. And I said to Chip, can I borrow your mechanic to come over? I want to bring some Marvel mystery oil and some plug wrenches and stuff. See if she starts and I had after Ed, all Ed Brown, years. the tow guy. You know, Ed oh, Brown. Sure, I said, Ed, Ed, everybody's best friend so got ev- him on speed dial. That's right. We <laughs> all do. So Bill flies down. He has no idea. He's just got a check with him. I have Ed Brown there. And Marty, who was Chip's mechanic. And we all converge at Michelle's. To make a long story short, Bill buys the car. And of course, Bill still has it today. And he takes it right to, at that time, Phil Riley and company. Mm -hmm. And has them go through it, make sure everything's perfect. And so the two of us have our twin 275s, long nose, six carburetors. His is way rarer than mine. And it's just like one of those magical stories, you know, that just... Was a, meant to be. Well, if she has any other garages with any other dusty <laughs> yeah. old cars in them, give me a call. Let me see what I can oh, do. What gosh. a great story, Isn't that Bruce. fabulous? That is and so the car has a great owner. Yeah. It's basically... Two guys that don't sell their cars. I love it. Even today, here we are almost 20 years later, she comes up about every four or five years to see her car. She still loves that car, checks in on the phone every so often, and so it's just a, a wonderful experience. I mean, this whole thing with Bruce, with Michelle, with the car. I mean, just, it's a fate. What a fantastic thing. Later on, we talked to Brett Anderson, who was able to elicit some winemaking history from Bill Harlan himself. Nature delivers you a new hand every year, so we do our best to express the character, not only of the place from where the wine comes from, but the time, that growing season. Certainly the difference between any automotive manufacturer and what you do in your wine businesses, Bill, is that no automotive manufacturer has a 200-year plan. (laughs) And uh, I think your vision is clearly one that's strategic, not just for the near term, but for the long term. 
But interesting thing, you're a big thinker, you're a long-range thinker, but you're also a detail man. And those are interesting characteristics to share in the same mind. Most people don't have that ability. And I look at, for instance, even the labels of your various wines, the Harlan Estate, Promontory Bond. These are amazing things. You're aesthetically driven on every level. Someone say, well, what is the vision? What is it all about? And what are you trying to do? And so work on giving answers to that, which this idea of creating a first growth has evolved into creating a domain of producing wines at the very highest level from a few different properties. And I would say the things that they have in common more have to do with why. The reason why for us is really to, I think over time we can delight people. If we can, with a little more depth, we can begin to help enrich their lives, maybe indirectly. And if we can do that at a high enough level to inspire them to maybe go beyond. What I think of as elevating the spirit, and we talked about these cars. Aesthetically, if you have a car that's beautiful, it, it makes you feel good, even when you're not in it. And once you're in a car that you've become at one with it, you just feel great there. So both of them are about elevating the spirit. You know, you think about throughout history, what has elevated the spirit more than anything else? And it really gets down to art. And so when you think of these fantastic cars you were talking about with Bruce and talking about the Peterson Museum, the automobile is going to be recognized as a work of art, these great automobiles. I think someday wine will be recognized in the realm of art. So if we can be working toward producing something at that level that can have that kind of impact on how people cognitively think about things, but also aesthetically, the emotional connection is really about why we're in this business and how those two relate, I feel. Bill and Brett, this was a very rare insight and kind of a special quiet moment to get to really understand the depth behind the wines. Certainly the wines that you produce are remarkable, but I think more remarkable still is the vision behind them and the fact that this vision is certain to endure for not just a century, but centuries and more. My friend Alana Scher, an automotive journalist and author, joined me for episode eight. Always a pleasure to talk to. She had some interesting insights about the future of automotive collecting and how to reach the next generation. Let's talk about car shows. Which are your favorite car shows? My favorite car shows are car shows where there's an activity other than just sitting next to your parked car. So I'm guessing then that your least favorite would be uh, traditional venues like <clears throat> Pebble Beach or, uh, <laughs> or any, uh, anything that falls along that line where people kind of park them and start them only for the judges. Well, Pebble is an animal all of its own, and there's so much going on there that it's a pretty exciting place to be, and yes, you can always I, go to the racetrack there. Absolutely. So certainly, I, won't, certainly won't take anything away from Monterey Car Week. Yeah, so I would say Monterey Car Week is pretty good as far as, you know, car shows go. And it's not that I don't think that there's a place for, you know, morning cars and coffee meets or, or for, like, Days in the Park, you know, Woodley Park here in Los Angeles. That's a fun show, the Italian-French car show. I love that one. They do a Mopar one. They do a Ford one. You know, so it it is nice to have a place to just get together and see people you know in the hobby and maybe look at cars that are similar to yours. But the ones that I really like have been shows like Roadkill, which is an offshoot of Hot Rod Magazine, does a show in Detroit in the summer where they shut down Woodward, which is where the original engineers used to drag race back in the 50s and 60s, 70s. 
And they shut it down and they do a legal drag racing show, an event. And they also, it's right outside of M1, so they also have drift rides inside the venue. Dodge does a drift ride. And it's just, it's so fun because there's stuff happening all over the place. So there are cars parked and you can look at them, but then you can also see those cars racing each other a few minutes later when they drive down the, the drag strip. And to me, a car that is parked and not moving and that you never see moving, you don't really understand. Mm-hmm. That's right. Like, I feel like I didn't really understand the appeal of vintage Lamborghinis until I rode in one and I heard what it sounds like That's when you're right. in one. Well, now you're now you're talking my language. Yes, there's nothing quite sounds like a V12 from that era. And yeah. a Lamborghini sounds different than a Ferrari, and that makes it even more interesting. Yeah, and so, you know, when I only saw them at auctions or parked in museums, I thought they were pretty, but I did not get it. Yeah. <laughs> and then once I was in one, I was like, oh... Yeah, there's nothing else like this. I've never experienced this before. I'll bet that was a Mira. It wasn't a Mira. It was an Espada. Oh, an Espada. Well, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, Yeah, that beautiful, long, low, flat cockroach of a thing. It's (laughs) one of the most beautiful Gandini designs ever. I love those cars. Um, I still haven't been in a Mira, so if somebody's listening and would like to give me a ride in a Mira, I am available. Just contact Robert. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Well, that's a great car to drive, too. I mean, and I think... Earlier, you were talking a little bit about, well, how do we get more people to do this? How do we get people to love cars the way that we do? And I think that there are a lot of different approaches to it. And people are making those approaches. I mean, one of them is to be less snobby for all of us, you know, to release the desire that we have to tell people that the way that they're doing car stuff is not cool. Back to that more inclusive kind of thing. We, yeah. we, we can't afford to alienate all the enthusiasts because there aren't that many of us. Yeah. And so I think that trying to make things not so separate and, you know, there used to be so many different ways to be into cars that you could be like, well, I'm a lowrider guy and it's no connection to hot rodding. But really, if you look at lowrider and hot rodding history, they joined. They like, do they, coincide. They, it's all about customization and expressing yourself. And they also started in some of the same places, you know, I mean, like the artists who did, you know, who kind of developed into the lowrider style of painting, they were doing custom hot rods before that. And if you start looking at cars from the late 40s and the 50s and when they first started doing these kind of decorative paint jobs, you will recognize the design elements that became lowrider paint jobs. Absolutely. You're right. Some of the best pinstripers, for instance, would work from, you know, one vernacular to the other. Yeah, and so things like that where to say, like, there's not a, a wall between these things, and there isn't a wall between American cars and European cars, you know, outlaw Porsche guys, for example, you That's know, right. doing these kind of funky off-roady Porsches, and there's also people doing that with American muscle cars, and then obviously trucks are right in the middle of all of that. That's right. You're, you're using that technology for both of those cars to learn how to, to deal with having big wheels and tires and knobbies and all of that. But also... And this is a hard one for a lot of people. One thing that I've noticed in sort of reading and reviewing and being in the community is that I think that there's a real interest in climate, you know, climate change and ecological concerns in younger people for good reason, because they're going to have to be around with whatever mess that is left. That's right. And in the car community, especially in the performance car community, kind of across the board, there's a real reluctance to have that conversation because it's not a super easy one. That's I'd, a good point. I mean, you're burning dead dinosaurs to the tune of, you know, five, six miles a gallon in some of these super high performance cars from the era. 
Yeah. And I mean, I would say as somebody who drives these cars, that there are solutions to it. One is, first of all, most people who have old cars don't drive them as much. That's as, right. You know, that they're, they're really not the problem. But also, like, I bought the Opal and I get 30 miles per gallon in the Opal. Isn't that amazing? It's incredible. It's, and, it's better than the new Mercedes that I've got parked downstairs right now. That's so funny. <laughs> so there are classic cars that get great mileage. So you, if you want to drive a classic car daily, you could look into that. To not deny and to not demonize people who care about the world and wanting to save rainforests and stuff. Like, it doesn't have to be either or. You can care about both things. And I think that that's going to be really important moving forward because you don't want to make people choose. Like, you don't want to make people say, I can only love cars or I can only care about the earth. That's a, that's a really valid observation. You know, Aletta, you, you bring up some real good points. Obviously, it's a matter of the mindset and it's a matter of how we want to look at this hobby going into the future. You're right. Certainly, these high fuel burning uh, supercars and hot rods from the past are not being driven that much. But the idea of being conscious of future needs is certainly something that's going to be top of mind for younger enthusiasts as they come into the hobby. Yeah, and I think that there are ways to to address that or to at least allow that to be a part of the conversation without it being an enemy situation. <laughs> that's right. That's absolutely right. Because certainly there are uh, there are some people that have no understanding of why we would ever be interested in these things. Yeah. And if we can make it something that people are okay and comfortable talking about without, you know, name calling or deciding that one side is, you know, old dinosaurs and the other side is that's, is mindless tree huggers. That's right. Then we'll have a better voice to make sure that the rules and the laws that are made are not going to just punish us who collect old cars and do nothing to solve a problem, right? You know, like you could ban every car from pre-1973 right now and it would, you it would It would not make a dent in the environmental no. concerns Mm-mm. that we have. You're right. You're it, absolutely right. Morgans are one of the most unique cars out there. Made with wood and a bold design, Morgans are not only highly collectible, but managed to collect some of the most interesting enthusiasts as well. In this episode, I was joined by Dennis Glavis, owner of Morgan West, who had these incredible stories to share. My own not-so-illustrious vintage race career, I did the Carrera Panamericana in Mexico three times in the flat red, flat red eater Morgan plus four that we called the Flying Haggis, if you're familiar with the the Scottish. I'm familiar with that delicacy, and I use that with large air quotes around it. I believe one is actually served at the annual Morgan meet with great pomp and ceremony. But yes, the Flying Haggis, I've seen the car, of course, and that was quite a machine. Well, we transported it to Mexico, to Tuxla La Gutierrez, the first, the starting point for, that was the 88 race. And the Mexican transporter that brought it down rolled and crashed outside Guadalajara and burned to the ground. And six of the eight cars burned to the ground. And we're there day after day waiting to find out what two cars didn't burn to the ground. And then we suddenly got word that the Hudson didn't burn, and the Morgan partially burned. A truck arrives, and all the Carrera Panamericana, all the livery on the cars all bubbled, the paint on one side of the car from the heat from other cars, and the wood framing that is broken in half, oh, no. just absolutely in half, so that when you drive the car and go around the corner, the wood that the wheel wells are made of rubs against the inside of the tire, and you get this wonderful <laughs> smoke <laughs> effect. Symphony, <laughs> symphony of, and the smell of, of burning rubber. And, and rubber, yeah. <laughs> so 
We raced it, and it never failed us. We finished sixth in class. The interior was missing from the car. (laughs) So we go, what are we going to do? Because the only thing behind the seat back is a one-by-one piece of wood, which is your seat back adjustment. So we had no seat back and no cushions. There were just two wood boxes. And we just stole about six or seven pillows from the hotel we were staying at and sat on those and strapped ourselves, strapped them under the racing straps. I hope there are pictures of this fiasco because it just sounds amazing. And you get hazard pay for even thinking about enduring that and Uh, and coming in sixth in class. Amazing. It was great. It was absolutely great. And we ran that same car. We fixed the chassis and never fixed the paint. That was kind of a souvenir. That's right. And ran it the next two years and never not finished. I mean, I don't even remember where we placed in the automobile Maynor, the little cars class. But we had some incredible races with oh, the fellow from Pink Floyd, Nick yeah, Mason. Yeah, Nick Mason. Yeah, he yeah. had a, a Lancia. We could pull him in the corners, but he had a higher top end. We'd go down these, like, 10-mile-long straightaways, and he'd be just inching, 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 go past us and very slowly disappear. And the last leg on the last day was about a 25-mile straightaway, and it was just pedal to the metal the whole way. And we're just, you stay right on the crown of the center of the road in case you wander or something coming along. And we're just doing 115. The car became an aerodynamic brick at that speed. Of course. Front end. Yeah. And there's an armadillo just oh, <laughs> ambling no. very slowly. Oh, no. It's not going to be a good and story. And we're yelling, get out of the way. <laughs> Luckily, we avoided him. He avoided us safely. That's great. And That's the best great. part is, what do we come upon? Nick Mason, broken down. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hi, Nick. Hi, oh, Nick. man alive. He should have been in his 250 GTO. <laughs> that might have been the only way to escape you for good. Well, I, I guess the, the Morgan stories just are almost endless because the characters that own these cars are endless. Like I say, I mean, when I used to join the club for some of the annual dinners and whatnot, I met some of the biggest characters of any car club I've ever met in my life. And certainly you probably know them all. Yeah, we've had some amazing experiences. And I was in the Northern California Morgan Club for, well, I'm still in it, but I was an active member when I lived there for about 30 years. And, you know, now I'm, I'm down here the last 20 years. But the characters we had were, were just amazing and, and just the experiences. A lot of the three-wheeler guys were kind of the British Hells Angels of the club, except it was without no drugs, no guns. <laughs> I'll take that back. Yes, there were guns. I'm sure uh, there were. And I mean, just the things they were, would do, they'd outrun police through neighborhood. I mean, it was kind of silly stuff. And one of the, the characters we were at, the Casa Munras was our base, and it was also the base for the Aston Martin guys and their wives. But that's a different crowd. <laughs> yeah, but they helped us. And, and and this is the early days when guys mm-hmm. drove DB4s, DB5s, DB6s. There Back when a DB4 was just an old used car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were just a big iron lump engine. So we're in the bar of the Casa Munras, uh, the Aston guys and the Morgan guys, and we're all telling lies to each other, fishing stories. And one of the fellows with us was John Coombs, 
John Coombs had been kicked out of England. He was a dwarf, a little person, and his father was Clary Coombs. Clary Coombs was considered the world's greatest expert on F-type three-wheelers and had bought one new, and that was his everyday car until he passed away in the late 90s. In fact, Clary didn't even have a telephone in the rural area. He got that in the mid-90s trying to modernize his life. But anyhow, the reason John was kicked out of England was that John loved to drink. And being as small as he was, he couldn't hold his liquor at all. And everyone knew it, and all he wanted to do was fight. So his kind of caretaker and fellow imbiber carried a chrome 45 strapped to his ankle for God knows what reason, just because he thought it was cool, whatever. He was kind of a wild man. And John is standing on the bar stool, obviously had way too much to drink, says to the bartender, you know, I want give me another Irish whiskey. And the bartender says, hey, you're cut off, buddy. And John goes, cut off, cut off. And you turn around, and there's this dwarf running down the top of the bar, <laughs> leaps and gets the bartender by the throat and starts choking him, screaming that he wants more booze. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a Morgan owner. Yeah, and then his protector, Cohen Biber, pulls out his 45, runs and grabs John under his arm and runs out the back door. Well, the bartender had called the police. They were there in minutes. The Aston Martin guys were all leaning against the front door, keeping the police from entering <laughs> <laughs> till John made a getaway. That sounds like a Peter Sellers <laughs> comedy, by the way, the one in which he drove a, a three-wheel Morgan. Yeah, well, he yeah. was a four-wheeler owner also. Was he really? Yeah. The benefits of being famous, I guess. But the fact is the, the cars have been owned by a lot of famous people and a lot of people that no one's ever heard of, and yet they all share the same experiences. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Sometimes the exceptional is not the biggest budget. Sometimes the exceptional is someone's ability to actually take their soul and print it on the screen for a moment. I want to learn everything that there is to know about the filmmaking process. I think part of art is hearing from the artists who create it. And the number of different visions, the number of different qualifications that have to go into making any film is insurmountable. And hearing those stories can be just as exciting and insightful as the movies themselves. Certain movies or certain scores, certain actors, have shaped who I am as a person. I have such appreciation for the things that people produce and the work that goes into it. Whether it's the writer who came up with the story in general or how the filmmakers were able to take that from the page and put it onto screen and then from the actors themselves who were able to kind of bring that all to life. All of it is what I want to hear because it makes me love my favorite movies even more. I'm Scott Talal. If you love movies like I do, you're going to love Hollywood Unscripted. Wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. It was a pleasure getting to meet Roger Griffiths, the BMW iAndretti Motorsport team principal. His work in motorsport racing spans countries and decades, and he's currently at the forefront of Formula E, which is focusing on motorsport racing for electric vehicles. But his different perspectives as he transitioned to working in the U.S. really resonated with me. After that, was it time to come to the States? Yeah. Again, it was a phone call. What are you up to? Would oh. you be interested in 
working in California? And I said, yes, but tell me more. And it turns out it was Honda. Honda has its North American racing headquarters in Santa Clarita, not too far from here. The position was to head up their IndyCar race team. They just transitioned from... Oh, a small job. Yeah. <laughs> just transitioned from Champ Car Racing to the new IRL. Mm -hmm. It was their first season. I guess things weren't going as they had hoped, and they needed somebody maybe a bit more experienced coming in to take over that role. So I joined, actually, Nazareth was my very first race, and it was a, a huge shock. I mean, coming from Europe, whether it's Formula One or sports car racing and the European style of circuit, to arriving in the middle of nowhere in <laughs> Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's... That Allentown, be, Pennsylvania. That, would, and, that and, would be true. And then you're in, in Nazareth on a tri-oval. I ended up staying there for just over 10 years. That's Indy, a long stint in, for you. Indy, I mean, that's Indy a, car racing. Yeah. I came over with preconception of the level of talent, engineering, whatever, mm -hmm. and I was completely wrong completely underestimated the quality of people, how hard people worked, the level of engineering that went into running an IndyCar. And it, I was super surprised, very pleasantly surprised. And I had 10 great years working with Honda. I mean, win team championships, drivers championships, the Indy 500. I saw Honda's participation as the sole engine supplier in Indianapolis and, and the IndyCar that's, series from 2006 to 2011. That's right. Well, that was a three liter V8, I guess. Yeah. It dominated yeah. the sport. I actually have a great story about my boss. Michael Andretti because he at the time he was team owner and in 2006 and 7 I think it was he decided to come out of retirement and have one last shot at trying to win the 500 and I remember him whenever one of his drivers whether it was Dario or Tony Kanaan would say oh I think my engine's down he'd, he'd ask me and he'd go what do you think and I'd say I can't see anything Michael but if you want me to take it out we'll put it back on the dyno at Honda and we'll see if there's a problem with uh -huh. it and he'd be like no that's good I'm okay with it and then the instant he got behind the wheel, he came in, he said, the engine's down on power. And I just looked at him and thought, drivers. Yeah, you know, yeah, so. yeah. yeah. Oh, but and I, I still tell him that today, you know, he, he knows that. I remember being at the 500 when 33 cars, the most terrifying moment for me was when they used to say, ladies and gentlemen, because several ladies were racing at the time, start your engines. And I'm like, please start. I've got 33 <laughs> engines. Every last one please of them has to start. start. Yeah, yeah. And I remember, I think it was 2008, Elio was on pole, Elio Castroneves, and it didn't start. And I could hear it on the radio, yeah. it won't start. Yeah. And there was this frantic activity because the, the whole field goes off to do the formation laps. And we had to have the side pod off and completely power cycle the car and oh, then gosh. disconnect yeah. the battery. We got it all back together and nobody really noticed. But I remember at the time thinking, we've got to change that. We, we can't have to disassemble the car to be able to do a full power reset. So. Oh, well, you, you certainly had success at Indianapolis. In fact, I see a, you brought a very interesting memento from, uh, I guess it's 2010, a, a ring that symbolizes the victory. I mean, it's essentially equivalent of an NFL Super Bowl ring of America's greatest race. Can you tell us about that season and yeah, what happened in 2012 um, especially? So 2010, I mean, it, it was Honda with sole supply. We're not supposed to have faith favorites but you always do and yeah. you know the Ganassi team for me with Dario Franchitti, Scott Dixon were my two favorite drivers at the time. 2010 Dario won the 500 and he also won the championship that year and it was also Honda's 100th IndyCar win and uh -huh. I'd been there for I think it was 98 or 99 of those wins so for me that win was super special and I don't often ask for things I just feel privileged to be in the pit lane as it is. Sure, sure. But once in a while, something comes along, and, and I did approach Mike Hull, who's the managing director of Ganassi Racing, and said, Mike, 
any chance I can get an Indy 500 win uh, ring? And he said, like, absolutely. Well, so, you, certainly, you certainly earned it. Uh, so, uh, so that's one I've got. I mean, I, I've got another one at home from 2014. I mean, I, I never got the rings when Honda was sole supply because for me that didn't count. It wasn't competition. I mean, obviously for the team it was super important. Yeah, but for yeah. me as the engine supplier, it, it, it didn't matter. But 2012 for me was a super special year. It was the first year of a new engine. And when we transitioned from the V8 to the V6, turbocharged engine the, the regulations allow you to be single or twin turbo honda had gone the single turbo route chevy had gone the twin turbo route and we had had a difficult start to the season I and mean, our engine was not only down on power but it was also unreliable mm. kind of the worst combination we made some progress and at long beach we introduced a, a new turbo spec which was approved by indycar but it, it came as a big shock to chevy because indycar hadn't made them aware of this and immediately we ended up in court. So they filed. Yeah, and yeah. Um, anyhow, there was a long, drawn-out court process. And I remember literally flying back from Brazil to go straight to Indianapolis to sit in depositions oh, and, and hearings oh. with, and all the rest of it. And ultimately, Honda prevailed and we were able to keep the parts. Because what Chevy wanted to do, and you know, I probably would have done the same, was to delay the introduction until after the Indy 500. Because the Indy 500 is what matters. Nobody cares who wins the championship. Nobody cares if you won 10 races. If you don't win the Indy 500, it doesn't matter. And so back in February of that year, when we were talking about the spec of the 2012 Indy 500 engine, we didn't know what to do. People said, oh, we've got all these different ideas and, you know, all these different developments and you could add up the horsepower and if you cumulatively added it up, we got 12 and I knew that would really be three. And I just said, look, We've got to build an engine for the Indy 500. I don't care about any other race after that because IndyCar changed the regulations that you were now only allowed so many engines per year, so you were having to carry them over to other events. And IndyCar, because it was a turbocharged engine, three different boost levels. So Indy was the lowest boost. Mm-hmm. And then there was a medium boost level. And then when you went road course racing, you had the high boost level. So you basically had to make an engine work at the different boost levels. And for the engineers amongst us, lower boost means higher compression ratio. Right. Higher boost, typically lower compression ratio. So I said, I don't care what happens after Indy. I don't care if we blow up every engine after <laughs> Indy. If we Which, can win the 500. Yeah. That's all that matters. Let's build an so engine. So high compression, high low compressed. boost, and, and be damned what happens yeah. later on. And if the compression uh, kills the motors, that's so be so, it. So be it. And, and these were literally race engines, the race engines. They didn't go in until carb day or the day before carb day. And I remember back in April, we did the Indy test and talking to Chip Ganassi and him saying, we're a bit off the pace, aren't we? And I'm like, yep. He says, have you got anything for the 500? I said, I think so. I think we've got something. And he says, okay, I trust you. Anyhow, we went into qualifying and I think the best Honda car was ninth. It was awful. I remember being interviewed on TV <laughs> literally after the gun had gone off at the end of qualifying and it was just... Oh, that's yeah, quite a hot seat to be on. <laughs> that's not a good place to be. And But we fitted the engines for carb day and uh, the Honda cars went out and Ganassi went one-two in practice on carb day morning. And the smiles on you their faces feel pretty good about that. when they were pushing the cars back. And anyhow, so we went into the race and all the Honda cars had the new spec engine. And what you started to see in uh, Indy, they have the pylon with the scoring pylon. So you mm-hmm. can see, and it was like these little ants marching upwards. And you slowly <laughs> saw the Honda numbers starting to creep towards the top. But what I was looking for was the first pit stop because that really tells you where people are on fuel mileage mm-hmm. because you don't know what the opposition is doing on fuel mileage. 
And I started to see the Chevy cars coming in first. And I thought, yes, we've got this. That's what you want. Because not only did we have more power, we had better yeah, fuel better economy. Range. Yeah. And ultimately it panned out and, you know, we got a Ganassi 1-2. Dario won it, Dixon was second. It was a super special win for me because 2011 at uh, Las Vegas, we lost a very good friend of ours, Dan Weldon. And he'd been super close to both Dario and Scott. And, you know, for the Ganassi team to win that race and Dan had been a Ganassi driver, mm. I think it brought a little bit of closure for everybody. and A tribute of sorts. Yeah, and, and for me it was just total relief. <laughs> I wasn't really there to celebrate. It was just the relief of believing in something that I thought was right back in February. Engineer's intuition. Yeah. Obviously, then, you're... But then the, the, the ironic bit it was, so the very next race was Detroit. So we took these indie high compression, low boost engines to Detroit, turned them up to 1.5 bar boost and put them one, two, three on the podium in Detroit, in Chevy's backyard. And they so, stayed together they and stayed then together turned together into little hand grenades. So it, was, it was fantastic. You know, it wasn't enough to save the championship, but it, sort of, it certainly saved some face at the end of the year. So. Well, what a fantastic story. Thanks for sharing that. And obviously, that was a great and memorable season for you and team members, but it sounds like a personal victory as well. In the final highlight, I wanted to share a part of the conversation I had with Bill Curtis, who hosts this show with me on a few episodes. He's an old friend, so we had a great time reminiscing and playing a fun game of either or. Robert, let's play a little game. I'm going to say a line, and you just give me a quick answer in a line. So, torque or top end? Torque. You can never use the top end, but you can use every pound foot of torque from the very get-go. Comfort or tight to the road? you got to go tight to the road. The seat of your pants feel is probably more important than spreading out so far and wide, as they say at Green Acres. You know, it's always interesting when you realize that the weakest point, the bottleneck, the problem in a car, is the connection between the seat of your pants and the automobile. Absolutely true. There go some of the seats that really matter. <laughs> Automatic or manual? Oh, manual. Every day of the week. In fact, I would have to say that until recently, I've never had an automatic. And I only got that because I had to. They didn't offer it in a stick. So you're probably not a Tesla guy, are you? Well, I think a manual transmission allows somebody to really engage with the driving experience. Eh, granted, they're not as quick as the, the paddle shift transmissions, but... Oh, so you don't include the paddle shifter in the manual, like the old Ferrari 430? Well, if it shifts itself... Then it's an automatic no, in my book. Damn it. No, I think there's something about stirring a gearbox that makes you a better driver. It makes you think before you act. And for me, that's half the fun of the experience. Unless now, you're on the 405 well, at 5 o'clock in the there afternoon. There is that. I guess that's what okay. drivers are for. Wood steering wheel or leather? <laughs> well, I'm a fan of the wood steering wheel only because I'm old enough to remember when those were actually standard fare on so many British cars. You got a 911 back in 1966, and, well, it came with a wooden steering wheel. Yep, yep. My Shelby had a wooden wheel. All the cars that I really, truly the loved. The old Jaguars had beautiful wheels. Oh, they sure did. That was like sitting in a wooden smoking room. Exactly. What was your favorite wooden steering wheel? Favorite wooden steering wheel would have to be by Nardi. The Italians make them like nobody else. Okay. Sport mode or racing? Racing is highly overrated, especially when you're as mediocre a driver as I am. I like sport. It's kind of like baby bear's porridge. It was just right. Mama's was too cold and daddy's was too hot. But sport mode is just right. So explain it to our listeners. With the racing mode, where it disengaged all the computer mechanisms that we've basically gotten spoiled with. There, there, There's a reason those were developed for people like me who are 
aren't smart enough to know how to actually use that car when it's expressing all its evil personality, which is why I think the sport mode's just right. In most cars, it gives you just the right amount of road feel. The handling dynamics are tight. The engine gives you a little bit of extra growl and back talk, but it's not so raucous and not so out of control that you're going to do damage to yourself or anybody else. Okay, here's a mean one. BMW or Mercedes? Well, for me, it's no question. It's BMW. My first car was a BMW. and All I right, think you're I'm, allowed to be wrong on I, something. I, exactly. For a guy who, who's never been without a Mercedes, I guess I'm probably going to get a little bit of blowback from you. But you're actually a driver. You like driving. You know, in all fairness, I think they are both remarkable cars. And in fact, one car I'd love to have in the stable, just because it's such a sleeper and such an incredible utility vehicle, is the latest Mercedes-AMG wagon. Boy, that A-Series wagon is phenomenal. And it looks good, it drives well, and you can throw a couple of 50-pound bags of fertilizer in the back and still have room for three cases of Chateau Lafitte. It doesn't get any better than that. Well, okay. Uh, Two wheels or four? Well, that's interesting. I think four wheels, ultimately, because at a certain age, one has to make a concession to frailty and the brevity of human life. But uh, as a younger man, two wheels... There's nobody listens to podcasts that will understand that. Well, as a young man, two wheels. And, you know, I still get dewy-eyed whenever I look at the motorcycles that are sitting stationary like floor lamps in my studio. I mean, my old Ducati, my Marini... So many of the bikes that have gone through my hands, all the Harleys that I built, I miss them dearly. And I miss the experience. We had some of our best times riding bikes, We did. When we, in our company, for you guys listening, we had like eight people. We all went out and got motorcycles. And every Sunday, we would be driving through the hills of Santa Monica and just had the best time. So here's an important question, Robert. Harley Softail or Road King? As a matter of fact, for me, it's a Harley Sportster cafe'd out. But all that being said, I was very fond of my Softail. It was a great bike. I think if I had it to do ever again, I'd probably buy a Road King. The comfort and the presence of that big bull buffalo is really something special. It actually isn't that different from that Buick Wildcat 445 (laughs) convertible that I had when I was a kid. Ice driving or thermal track in the desert? Oh, wow. Well, ice driving, you know, being from Southern California, I don't have a whole lot of conversance with cold weather driving. Ice driving is a lot of fun, but I have to say the track down at Thermal is a kick in the head. And let's face it, you can go out for great Mexican food and hunt chuck wallas at night. So it sort of offers the best of everything the desert has to offer. So when you drive, open windows or closed? Uh, Closed windows, actually. It's funny. I've owned a couple of convertibles, BMW, a Roadster, and a Morgan, of course. We shared Morgans for quite some time. Still, the best-kept secret in the car world. I vow to have another Morgan someday. But in all my convertibles, I have never really put the top down and enjoyed it. I like the quiet. I like the solitude. And frankly, the sun isn't a friend. So I like to have the top up. Exactly the opposite of you, Bill, because yeah, I no, think the first I, day I, I met like you, you were driving me a, and the breeze. You were driving an SL, and whenever I see an SL, I still think of you. A Bugatti, the engine, or the stereo? Uh, Well, they certainly get points for both. Bugatti's W16 engine is something remarkable. I mean, we haven't had a 16-cylinder power plant since the Chisetta, and before that, you had to go back to the pre-war to look at something like a Cadillac. But you're an audiophile. Hmm, Well, they do a remarkable job with their speakers and their audio systems. The real music comes from the engine. I didn't say that it necessarily is a stereo you should have on while you're driving. 
<laughs> but why get out of the car? Well, that's a good question. That's a very good point. Okay, so let's go to the mid-2000s. Rolls or Maybach? Well, that's an interesting one. You know, Maybach, or I should say Mercedes-Benz, got points for trying to resuscitate a brand that was moribund since 1937. Now, the Zeppelin, that was a Maybach. Do you remember how much of our toy shack the Rolls and Maybach took up? You had these classy, old, beautiful, collector, restored, elegant cars, and I had these monoliths that just took up half the studio. Well, in case you ever get kicked out of the house, you had a place to sleep. When you consider more than a century of automaking, unbroken, even through the war, they continue to manufacture something. Maybach... Well, but they did kind of have a break as they moved from into the BMW realm. Absolutely true. What a great story that is. Well, it is, you know, especially when you consider the year before they were officially taken over. I think they sold something like 70 cars in the United States. They were as good as dead. The embalmer was on the way. And BMW certainly resuscitated the brand in a beautiful way. And we've had a chance to talk with some of the designers that were a part of that resurrection. Let's talk about roads for just a minute. What's the best road you've ever driven? Oh, now that's interesting. Certainly in Southern California, we're spoiled. Angeles Crest is remarkable. Ortega Highway is hard to beat. Even our little canyons around here in Malibu, fantastic. Some secret roads that are just pure torture on wheels. I love them. So there's a road, Robert, when you're leaving London and you want to go and check out Stonehenge... There's a very long, very narrow road that has these things that are called hedgerows. They have these massive hedges on either side of the road, and it's incredibly narrow. Now, in the UK, you're driving something that can only sort of be called a car. It's and you're very, driving very on the small. wrong side of the road because they still haven't come around. You're our driving way of on the wrong side of the road, and you're driving fast. And there is all of two inches, maybe three, between your mirror and the mirror that's coming the other way. And you are zipping as fast as you can. And at some point or another, when you get proficient at it, you feel so powerful. That I think that was my favorite road. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, certainly European roads are narrow, and that's part of the challenge. I remember my first Lamborghini Murcielago excursion in Italy was fraught with quite a bit of terror, just trying to navigate some of those small streets in the old sections of town. My God, those cars aren't designed for that. They're designed for Fiat 500s, apropos of which I just have to give a shout out. You talk about discoveries, and there's still an opportunity to make discoveries as you get older. I recently got a Fiat 500. Don't laugh. Not only is it one of the most remarkable and accomplished pieces of automotive design. It opens cans and jars. Frank Frank Stephenson gets an A-plus for designing one of the most perfect cars in the world. It's also a fantastic car to drive. Now, the old saying, you can have more fun driving a slow car fast than you can have driving a fast car slow pertains. But when it comes to handling dynamics and the ability to park in places that you could never park before, in an urban setting around town, that little Fiat is magic. Back to roads, I think one of the best roads I ever drove was probably in Morocco. I guess the king at the time had ordered that it be paved, or whatever you can do in a totalitarian regime. It was a smooth as glass road and some of the most incredible landscape in the world, and I just wish that I'd had a better car to drive there. Some time ago, I believe you may have orchestrated this, we had the folks from McLaren set up a Rob Report trip. We, I think we called it the New England Fall Colors Drive. 
And I would have to say that that's my best driving experience. Just absolutely stunning roads through mountains and a kind of a fireworks display of changing colors in the fall where the leaves are such a bright red and orange and yellow and the roads look absolutely like they've been paved in the last 15 minutes. Well, you know, the seasons are something that drivers get to enjoy in the East Coast and certainly from the seat of a McLaren, it's hard to beat that experience. One more road that you and I took together. Which one was that? And between us, we had four wheels. And we left the Maui Four Seasons, ah, right, went over to the Lahaina Airport. We hung a right, hung another right, and suddenly we were going up a mountain road to a volcano. Do you remember that fantastic, I, windy I, road to the I top do. of that volcano? I do. That, that's a magical place. And again, a place that you wish you could transport some of your favorite cars because put a car you love on a road like that, it's hard to forget. Thanks for listening to Cars That Matter. Make sure you go back and listen to the full episodes that we highlighted here. And then join us next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, Edited by A.J. Mosley and Chris Porter. Engineering by Michael Kennedy. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Recorded at Kirkco's Malibu Podcast Studios. Additional music and sound by A.J. Mosley and Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.